Mark Mashua Joe, joined by August Rush. Soul Power coming down the outside, and Joy and Fat on the inside. They're all across the track. Soul Power on the outside. Hortensia. Hortensia's flashing home. Hortensia coming from last. Hortensia's won the Elgo Sprint. Hortensia, wasn't she a beauty? She started her career with Tony Noonan. Then this man who's joining us, Jared Daffy's here, of course, with us at the in the Tab Emporium at the Gold Coast Turf Club heading into the start of the Magic Minions Carnival Tab Wave Day. Thanks for joining us, Paul. Pleasure. Geez, uh, what a marvellous mare. You took it to three different... You won three group ones in three different countries. Quite extraordinary with Hortensia. Yeah, she was. It was a little bit... A little bit of uh, time's passed since then, but, um, no, she was a, a ma magnificent horse and uh, we're very fortunate to, to have her for a period of time and have the success that we did with her. She was... Um, yeah, she was something special, just had elite speed and uh, to be able to travel her from obviously Australia, then Dubai and then England uh, in the one calendar year, I think we won three Group 1s and three continents, so yeah. it, was a, it was a great effort by that mare. So out of all the Group 1s, the Winterbottom, Perth, Nunthorpe in the Northern Hemisphere in the UK, we just heard Terry Spargo's call in Dubai, which was the one that you gave you the, the most thrill with Hortensia? Oh, definitely Dubai. Um, that was a, a special win that night and um, to, I've only been to Dubai obviously once with a horse, which was her and you know, the chances of taking a one horse to a carnival like that and actually winning with just one one bullet in the chamber is uh, very rare. So for her to get there and do it, everything went right for a change. So we had no hiccups. The horse was perfect. Uh, her lead-up gallops was sensational, and I was pretty confident on the night. The ride turned out exactly how we wanted. I walked the was track. Was it Craig Williams in Dubai? Craig Williams in Dubai. We'd walked the track, um, and uh, I said to Craig, I'll never forget, we're walking down the track, and I said, listen, Craig, you're going to think I'm crazy, but um, this particular strip out here, the way they mow the grass, they actually roll it forwards, and I want you to try and come down on the, the strip of grass that's rolled forwards rather than the... St I said, it's only millimetres, but in the end, it could make the difference. Really? He says, I was thinking exactly the same thing. Did he go he out and walk me. it, obviously? He, he walked does. it with me. He said, I was thinking exactly the same thing. So that... Because they had rolled the... The, dip, the grass in both ways to give those lovely stripes when you're looking on the TV. So I said, let's go with the, the run of the grass. So um, he's about the only jockey that I'd kind of, I, I thought he was going to think I was crazy or something, but um, he took that on board. We came down exactly what was planned and uh, yeah, she flew home. So it was a, it was a really exciting night and um, I trained a, a granddaughter of hers to win a Group 3 a couple of weeks ago uh, at uh, Newcastle in the Spring Stakes. That was Alistair a, Fraser. Yeah, a bit, of a, the bit, owner. bit of a blast. So that was great. Yeah. And, Paul, it's not that long ago, I suppose, you were a pioneer in regards to these uh, travelling horses from Australia. We see it everywhere else now. You mentioned it was a... Everything went smoothly. What's changed in regards to, say, racing a horse in Dubai now compared to when you did? I don't know if things have changed that much, but it, it was just difficult. For instance, I'll give you an example. Uh, we came over on a particular flight at the time and uh, from quarantine restrictions, we were put in a big barn on our own. I couldn't get a companion pony. There was no companion horses. So just imagine a kind of a 40-horse barn and you're the only horse in it with nothing else around and it's okay. all sealed and air-conditioned. So when we arrived there, I said to the, the travelling foreman at the time, Leah, who's come on in the part, training partnership with me, I said, listen, we've got no option here other than we're going to have to be the horse's mate. So we were spending uh, most of the day every day, uh, one of us with the horse, uh, just to ensure she had some company. We had her out on the lead a lot, as much as possible, to try and settle her in. Um, I was sceptical at the time that that was going to work, but we had no choice. And uh, it did. She was very happy, and she... Um, ended up quite content in that environment and she thrived while she was over there in the couple mm. of weeks we were there and uh, uh, I guess the rest is history but um, no it was a lot of fun and if you've ever been to that carnival or seen it on the t it's 
it's surreal, the whole thing. You know, I mean, they had a couple of races and they had biplanes kind of flying 10 feet above the, the stand where you're kind of sitting almost doing loops and people walking around with tigers and stuff in the mounting yard. They have a full show, like a cabaret show, halfway through the meeting and it's kind of, you feel like you could be in Las Vegas, not mm. at a, a race meeting in Dubai. So the whole thing is quite amazing. The fireworks at halftime. Did you feel uh, like a superstar on that night when you won that race? Seriously? It, it was all a bit, no, not really, not at all. It was all very fast. It all happens very quickly and... Um, and you kind of whisked off and you had a, a bit of a, a press conference and then it, it all happened very quickly. Um, but just to kind of pull it off, um, you know, you, you realise after the event, you probably don't enjoy those things as much as you should at the time. It's more relief than, every, than anything else when you win those big races. And I think a lot of trainers will say the same thing. When you've got a horse, everything's going right and you think you're a big chance. It's relief at the end of the day that they've got the job mm. done. Must, so must be strange going to a meeting where the focus is not on gambling. It's about the horse. No drinking, no gambling. No drinking. No drinking, no gambling. Uh, there are pockets on track that they have changed, but generally, for general admission, there's, you know, obviously... Be no, no good for me. Uh, no good at all. You need no, to get the nerve uh, settler too, Paul, before the race. Yeah, no, it's, it's uh, <laughs> quite an amazing place. And there's, you know, the horses are... Uh, uh, stabled uh, or in the types quite a fair way away from the track and so there's a whole series of these big long underground tunnels to walk out to the yeah. pre-parade ring and then obviously the parade ring but it's an extraordinary facility and the whole night is quite extraordinary but no it was just a, it was just a thrill to get the job done on the day and, and to have a horse that could do it um, it was um, it was a funny morning, actually. I'll never forget it. So the uh, the alarm went off, and normally Leah gets in there 15 minutes before me, and she'd send me the, the, how much the feed the horse is left and the temperature of the horse. Anyway, so I get this text message that says 38.7. And so I get up, and I kick the bed, and I'm going crazy. I jump in the car. I fly around the corner about 200 kilometres an hour to rush into the stable, and because if it's 38.7, she's got a temperature. And so I fly into the stable and I said to Leah, I said, oh, God, what's happened? How bad is she? And she looks at me and she says, what are you talking about? I said, the temperature. She goes, oh, sorry, it's a typo. It was 37.8. Oh. And I never, I sat on my haunches. Were you still in your PJs? Oh, the car ride from, because from, we were staying at the track, so you stay at the hotel at the track. And the car ride around might have been a couple of kilometres anyway. Between there, when I got the text message, I was there in about two and a half minutes. But in that two and a half minutes, I'm thinking, I'm going to call the stewards, I'm going to call the owners and tell them we're going to have to scratch all these things that's going through your head as a trainer after everything had been perfect. So that was a real... What's the standard temperature for a horse and and how high does it have to get before you start to panic? Well, normally it's between 37.8 and 38.3. So in that, uh, it's a fine, that, range, that fine range, area, yeah. If it gets beyond that, um, you start to worry a little bit. So, um, yeah, thirty-eight seven would have been a worry. And how often is that taken with a horse like Hortensia travelling her over there? Oh, frequently with obviously travelling horses to make sure they've got any travel sickness or things like that. But routinely, twice a day. So every morning and afternoon, we're taking temperatures of the horses. Obviously, we're looking at the you know primary signs that something could be wrong. So obviously, the appetite's gone temperature is another thing and then if you've got a temperature the next uh, next stage will be taking a And we often hear about travel sickness uh, in regards to horses whether they be on a float or on a plane. What are the symptoms of, of travel sickness? Are there various degrees of it and how long does it take a horse to recover? It all depends on the degree of it and um, obviously when horses are travelling all the time they're naturally um, gravity they have a natural gravity draining system so their head's on the ground so they're draining their lungs and fluid off the lungs so their head's down and they have that natural drainage position so when they're on a 
in, they're basically in a pallet on a plane, and their heads in a in a in a, a high position, so they can't get their head down to kind mm. of. So that's why they re, they tend to get that travel sickness. So it's a bit of fluid on the lungs, and you get a little bit of an infection, and then it goes from there, basically. Civil mm-hmm. yeah, sense. Well, I interviewed you uh, in recent times or a few months ago. I was actually a little surprised. I was talking to you about your career, a little bit about your career, and I said, who's been the biggest influence in your training career? And you, but without hesitation, you mentioned a guy that's, of course, done some marvellous things with horses like Dr. Grace and Myocard and Groucho and Lord Ben in the early days. And he's here. He's a member here at the Gold Coast Turf Club, and he joins us on the phone, Dr. Jeff Chapman. How are you, Jeff? Well, it's pretty early. It's a bit hard to tell. The, the, the guess from all the sparrows is a bit off-putting, but otherwise we're all doing well. Yeah, but um, obviously Paul's um, lent on you along his journey so far and you run things by each other and so on? Oh, it's a long story. I don't know how far back it goes, but I was having coffee one day with his father at Main Beach. I think it was a sale time. It was a sale time one year, 20 years ago or something. And his father, John, said to me, will you have a yarn to Paul? I said, what about? He said, he wants to go training horses. I want you to talk him out of it. (laughs) I said, I think you're talking the wrong bloke, aren't you? He said, no, no, go and have a yarn to him. So I um, bailed him up and we sat down and spoke about training horses and the problems and the pitfalls and all that sort of stuff and how you've got to start with scrubbers and discards because you learn more from them than you will from a good horse and um, see where you go. So I said that he was very keen and he'd been in uh, stud farms working in England and America and Japan and he'd been watching trainers in all those jurisdictions and he thought he could have a go at it. And he, with his athletic background, he was a bit of a star at school in athletics. He was rugby. a rugby as well. Hmm. Yeah, so... He had a fair idea about the physiology and knowledge of work and training. So I said, mate, don't die with the music in you. Give it a go. So his father wasn't too happy with that. So, <laughs> But he supported him in 100%. And away he went. But we also, we're all disciples of Percy Edwin Sykes. His father, John, who he helped. Percy helped him greatly in establishing Arrowfield. Uh, myself, he basically taught me how to train and how to look after horses and what have you. I was a very close friend. And um, I lived with him for a while and we did a lot of things together. And he was outstanding. And, of course, Paul was a disciple of his as well. So we all benefited from a basically Percy Sykes. And then from that point of view, from a training point of view, there aren't many blokes. Percy had about 50 years' experience training. I'd had about 30, so there weren't many blokes like Paul that could pick up the phone in one minute, get the 80 years' racing experience at the end of a telephone call. So that was a bit of a help, I think. Might not have been. But if he had <laughs> ever had a problem, it was easy for him to pick up the phone. And Percy also had a philosophy. You didn't train a group one with it within your first four or five years of training. You had to give it away. You didn't have what it takes. So um, I don't know how long before he got a here, but it obviously was in the first four or five years and away we went from there. Yeah. So basically an interesting story. And uh, he's still into the training business. He 
he's big on martial arts, as he mightn't have told you, but he's been doing that for 10 or 15 years. And on the weekends when he takes horses to Sydney, he stays up at King's Cross for the weekend and works as a bouncer at the Pink Pussycat. <laughs> so he thinks he's another Jack Reacher. <laughs> Paul, so that's just, uh, basically a short resume of yeah. Paul Massara. Did, did I just saying, Dermot, well, did he do some work with Percy as well in the early days? I don't know, to be honest with no, you. No, 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 we all well learned from Percy. Mm. Just uh, Groucho, we, we mentioned those horses. I know Groucho, he was your fave, wasn't he, Doc? Yeah, he was a favourite horse. I, I find I'm, it's hard to hear you, but go on. Yeah, yeah, Groucho was a great horse. He was a bit like a pet dog. Great horse. He let him walk around the stables with you. Jared's keen to ask you about the myocard plunge in the Sydney Cup. Yeah, we've all we've all heard it before, but uh, Major Drive, of course, was the big drifter that day, and I think Greg Hall rode uh, Major Drive, and myocard was the big mover and an upset that we'll still talked about to this day. Yeah, it was the end of a pretty long program. It was basically my fault. He um, he got a, an injury the week before when he won the Tankwood Stakes. And I had to give him some antibiotics and it sort of flattened him a bit. But I still started him in the Sydney Cup because it looked like we were picking up money for jam. So I, I, I raced him. I probably I shouldn't have in hindsight. And in a 12-horse, one of the things that happened was they scratched the top weight. So all the weights went up. And he's the only three-year-old at that time that ever carried more than weight for age in a two-mile race. Anyway, that aside, um, he was a bit flat and in a 12-horse race, 12, 9-horse race, he was four wide all the way, which is um, a bit unusual, and uh, got beaten half a length by a major drive, which was Packer's own horse. So it was one of those things that happened in racing. Yeah. Eight dollars. It started out from four fifty. They even went to Greg around the before the barrier around the gates. Um, spoke to him and uh, four to seven, I think, was Myercard. Seven million, they say, Kerry had on Myercard. Jeff. Yeah, uh, only a button off his fly. <laughs> Just uh, in regards to. Um, Dr. Jeff, uh, who's on with us, Paul, uh, obviously just liaising, you know, uh, on a regular basis and just, you know, just someone to lean on and, and ask questions and given his experience and all the success that he had. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it was great to have Doc as a, as a, a kind of a, a backstop and uh, certainly someone to uh, springboard ideas off and uh, he had a huge amount of knowledge. And, um, you know, it's one thing, money can't buy his experience and uh, it was fabulous to have him. Uh, helped me and uh, particularly in, in the early stages and he's always you know never short of an opinion and what jockeys I'm putting on in particular um, of late um, he's got a few favorites that um, that uh, I get pressured uh, <coughs> if I'm not using I should be um, but um, no he's a, a, a huge help to me and um, when I started training I come up here for the Queensland carnivals and you know I'd stay at his house I'd be on the pullout bed and um, be up early in the morning he'd come and help me walk walk horses in the afternoons and um things like that but um uh doc had uh, he had the answers for everything i was after so uh, if i had a question he was one person i could go to that had the answers the experience and the knowledge uh to give a, a really well-rounded response to whatever i was after so as a young trainer you're very you know it's a it's a massive benefit and a, a privilege if you can have someone like that to to lean on and um, and to help you. Mm. I think you might have retired about five or six years ago from your practice, did you, Jeff? 
Yeah, I did. I, uh, I got a bit old. And the government's making it very difficult for doctors over 70 now to remain registered. So um, I retired at 77 and I thought that's probably a, a good innings. But I can tell you one thing, don't ever retire. It's a very boring existence. <laughs> so you never thought about tinkering with one or two? Ah, uh, no, not really. I messed around when I first came up here with one horse, but it's a hopeless. You, you can't keep it up. Like, you've got to get up at 5 o'clock and then you're still working at 6 o'clock that night. It's a, it's a bit hard for a while. And one horse, to get one horse that's any good is a bit tricky. You want to be really lucky. And, and Jeff, um, on a day-by-day -day basis, what sort of um, interest do you still have in racing? Do you watch them all or...? Well, I basically tell Paul who he should put on his horses, as he mentioned. <laughs> right. And um, after a race, I tell him what he did wrong. And well, he, <laughs> you must have done something right. <laughs> Earlier today, before the show started, Steve was reading out uh, Paul's statistics. Training record. Yeah, Statistic, amazing. amazing statistics. Yeah, 2,290 runners are thereabouts for 500 winners and 602 placings. That's one of the best strike rates in the country. That's with Paul. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I must have oh, been listening. Well. I must the have been listening. Thing, um, that horse he took away, Hortensia, the strap he sent with it was a girl called Leah Gavranich. And she's been with him all since he started. And they're now partners, as you've probably seen. She's she's the assistant trainer or trainer or whatever you call it. So the, now the, the name goes up with the training is Paul Massar and Lee Gavranich. Yeah. Look, it's lovely to hear from you. Um, hopefully we can see you at uh, a track work or at the Gold Coast in the future, Jeff. Yeah, good, Steve. Nice to talk to you. Yeah, same to you. Uh, Dr Jeff Chapman joining us here, our outside broadcast at the Gold Coast Turf Club. Yeah, so, Paul, that's something you, you must be very proud of. And, and just tell me why you decided to enter into the training partnership a few months ago with Leah Gavrinich. Well, I think it's important that young people get a go, to be honest with you. And um, she's a very committed person to... Um, well, to the to our stable and to to horse. she loves the horses, and um, it's a large part of her life. And I thought to myself, well, you know, if I stop training in the future and she wants to go off and do something on her own, um, she's been with me for I think almost 13 years, a couple of years after I started training, and um, you know, she came as a, a fledgling little, you know, she was a little track work rider from she was 19 or 20 from Perth. And, uh, you know, started just as a stable hand and worked her way through the ranks within the stable and um, has always been there, is 100% reliable. And uh, those people are, are hard to find. And uh, I thought she needed uh, some acknowledgement for all the effort over the years. And, um, and, you know, it's a greater level of responsibility for her, you know, really, when your name's on the, on the masthead, um, you know, you've, you've kind of got to perform and... Uh, live up to a certain standard, which which she does, and uh, I thought she she deserved that due recognition, and um, I thought for her it would be a, a pathway for other things down the track if, you know, if I decided to stop training or any of those things. Because so, you did take a back seat a couple of seasons ago in the training. Yeah, we, we I dropped right off. So there was a period of time where basically straight after Hortensia and... Um, and we we were sh uh, our manager on the farm left, um, and it was kind of the timing wasn't great for us. It was just before the season started, and that's basically what happened. Why I stopped training. I was about to go 
um, I was kind of springboarding into a, a kind of a, a much better place in terms of training, in terms of numbers and outside client, a lot of majority outside clients. And, um, you know, just had multiple Group 1 winners and everything was going great. And then uh, basically my father said, listen, we really need you to come over and, and run the farm. And um, so I kind of had to downsize the stable almost overnight. So we went from having kind of probably 60 or 70 in work, 60 or 70 in work to um, just a handful. The only reason I kept a handful was um, because I had Scissor Kick and um, Panzer Division, which were two really good three-year-old Colts at the time, and they were right in the middle of their preparation. So we couldn't just stop completely and send them somewhere else and having to then sit in, you know, fit into a new environment and get to a you know the new trainers has got to learn you've got to kind of learn a horse when they first arrive get used to the idiosyncrasies and things like that so um so i was midway through their preparation so we decided we'd keep a couple which would be a handful of horses and i kept a handful of staff that was the hardest thing at the time i had a great group of a uh, great team and really good group of uh, young horse people and they had they went in all their different ways couple of my trainers now successful trainers and bits and pieces but um we had to let most of the crew go and so there's only a handful of which leah was one of the remaining um that stayed with the handful of horses that we had and um then we were actually thinking we'd probably just peter down to nothing once those horses ran their course and they go somewhere else and just as time went on we thought well we've got the training center there and it's it's um it was uh, we were growing the business was growing the, on the, stad, the stud side and numbers were growing we thought oh well it could be a useful tool maybe down the track and just so we, we, I was almost going to stop training completely and so there would have been a season where I probably only had I don't know a few runners you know really and, okay. yeah so it, it petered right down to that and then we thought well we stop completely because it's hard to do both you know it is difficult to do both and give 100% to both and then just organically the numbers and we had horses with injuries and because our numbers on the farm we're producing more horses so when you produce more horses you got more horses with problems or developmental problems or things that needed time and um you know those horses don't really fit into big trainer facilities they just don't you know they need horses that are up and running and horses that are filling boxes need to be earning an income they just you know, and I had horses there that needed to trot and counter for a year and do nothing else um, because they had little problems. So um, the facility kind of kept rolling, but in a small way, and then organically just grew back up to kind of probably what it is today where we've got... We don't have a huge number of horses in work, probably around 30, 35 to 40 is... 30 to 40 is probably where we sit at the moment. Um, and they're all the horses, fundamentally, that we don't sell at the sales for a particular reason or can't go to a sale. They might have gone in the wind or they might have had an X-ray issue that uh, needs time um, or some other some other problem. The odd one we do get, and every now and then I find a horse that I love that I might just pick and put to the side. <laughs> um, but uh, that's very rare. Um, I did that a couple of years ago with a daughter out of Miss Finland um, called Miracle of Love, who's a, a really good filly that we've got at the moment. I loved her from kind of the day she was so born. So one in Brisbane, of course. Exactly. Came second to JJ. But she... Um, I loved her since the day she was born. And um, she was one and she was, I think, she's the ninth or tenth file out of Miss Finland. So I let a few go before uh, I uh, put my hand up for one. So uh, the other owners of Miss Finland generously uh, allowed me to uh, to train her and it's been pretty good so far. So... Um, but fundamentally, um, you know, the horses we train need a bit of time. They're well-bred horses, but, um, you know, the, the, our, our core focus at uh, Arrowfield is to sell our best horses, and uh, that's always been our policy and will remain that. But uh, if there's leftovers or things that need time, we also pre-train quite a few for other trainers. So, oh, do you? Yeah, so we, we you know, they get broken in um, up in our area. 
and uh, then they come to us and they do all their pre-training. So we might have horses for six months, a year, whatever it takes until I think they're ready to go to a to another trainer. We've got horses with all the major trainers in in the state in most states, and um, yeah, so a lot of the pre-work gets done at, at the training centre. Yeah. Yeah. And what's that track like, Paul? Your, your main track there at your property? Yeah, so we've got a, a poly track, a bit like the one you've just been talking about here at the Gold Coast, uh, which I think is uh, great to um, to train on. I mean, I'm I'm not a you know. There's some people that are against poly tracks and training on poly tracks and learning the surfaces, this or that. But oh, I think it's a great surface to train on. I think it's quite uh, forgiving for the horses. It's very consistent. And uh, I guess in Australia, it's a bit of a new thing, but they've been training on poly tracks in England. What about for a racing long time. on them, though? Racing on them is probably a different story. I mean, the climate here is different. I mean, they race on them a lot in England, particularly in the winter when it's cool. Um, it's the reverse surface of what we think. So it's difficult for sometimes punters and people to get their heads around when it's hot. The, the product is softer, so they go slower. We always think, okay, it's hot, it's warm, faster tracks, the horse is going to run faster. It's the reverse. And the pattern can change too, can't That's it? That's right. The cooler it is, the faster the, the track will be. So you have to kind of change that in your mind a little bit. And rain can affect the way it is. Um, I, listen, I think it's fine to race on. Um, it's not my preference, and it's not, I don't think, anywhere it's a preferential surface. But when you've got certain weather events and you've got, a lot of wet weather. There's no reason. Oh, look what it's done here. Amazing. Would, it's done the fill yeah, the void. Yeah, I'd prefer personally. If you said, Paul, do you want to run your horse on a on a heavy eight or ten, or do you want to run on a poly track? I'd run on the poly track. If you gave me the preference, mm. Paul, you've got a reputation uh, amongst punters um, of having the ability to place horses. You'll you'll turn up with it anywhere and get wins, and and we've seen that in the stats that Steve uh, read out a little bit earlier. Is that something that you put a lot of time and effort into? Yeah. I do. I put a lot of time and effort into placing the horses. Um, I, as I said to you, I, we, our, I don't really have a lot of high-quality horses, so I need to try and get what I can out of them, um, and I do try and place them very well. So um, that's pretty much... And, and, and I'm, we're looking to turn horses over because we've got horses coming through and on it, so I'll try and win a couple with them and then... Turn them over and uh, what do you mean? Turn oh, sell online, them, sell on, them, sell them English online, digital, online. or through another yeah, forum? Yeah, from digital sales or or privately sometimes. But I'm happy to have a couple of wins with them and, and then turn them over. We've obviously got the often the mares and the stallions, so we're looking to you know help the record of the mare and the stallion. But uh, often the mare, with getting a you know one of the, the stock up and running and getting a couple of wins on the board for for that particular mare, and then I'm happy to then to sell them and someone else to have a few wins. I'm Always happy to sell them and see them winning wherever mm. they are. That's great. That landscape has changed somewhat over the last eight or ten years with online. There, there seems to be a high degree of confidence now in people from other states buying horses online. I'll be honest, I'm amazed at the prices we're getting for online horses. Um, and listen, they're good horses and they go and they win plenty of races and I've sold horses online for 100000 they've gone and won the next three in a row. And they would have won the next three in a row for me or for whoever mm. got them. They're already up and running. But it's still, um, you know, you, you can get like for a, a horse that's won one or two in the bush, you can get $100,000, you know. for wow. Go back 10 years and you're getting fifteen grand. you know. So that market is definitely increased. And I guess to a degree, you know what you're buying. It's not probably as exciting 
uh, is going to a yearling sale, I think you could be getting the next Winx, which is mm. possible. You know you're not getting the next Winx, but you know you're getting a horse that's going to run tomorrow and the next day. Well, you would have heard down through the years some horror stories of people who have bought horses and they've turned up and basically got three legs, but those days are well and truly gone. I think, listen, they're well and truly gone. We try and uh, give as much information as we can about each horse. Online, there's videos, there's photos, mm. there's, there's whatever you want. I always put scopes on there. And uh, if anyone wants to get a vet to come out and check the horse, please do. You know, that's that's no problem at all. Yeah. So, And most of the horses you're selling online are up and running. So, listen, if they're winning the week before, there's normally not too much wrong with them. You know, so if they're, they're sound enough to race and win, um, I'm sure that most of the time they're... Uh, they're, they're in pretty good order. I've just got a list of some of your better horses here. We talked about Hortensia, Alberta was a group yeah. one winner for you. Scissor Kick, of course, the sire of Giga Kick, yeah, Mahasara. Yeah. Raced in uh, blue colours yeah. away from Arrowfield, I think, yeah, outside were, Klein. Yeah, that was that was Kiora. Yeah, yeah, and then you had Benatar, and, you know, the list goes on and on. Battlefield, he was a horse that had, and he had lightly, lightly raced, seven starts, five wins, but he had problems, obviously, didn't he? Battlefield. He, he didn't have any, but he, I don't know if you recall, he actually, he's probably the saddest day I've ever had on a racetrack. He was... He was going to be my first Group 1 winner. He was before um, Alberta, and he had, you know, I used to say, if Alberta could win a Group 1, he'd win. It was the same with Benito. Uh, two horses. Benito, I said, if Alberta can win a Group 1, Benito will win 10. Like, that's how good he was. And uh, he went out for a spell after the Blue Diamond and rolled under a fence and got injured, hurt his back, and was that was the end of him out spelling. And um, and the other horse you mentioned, Battlefield. Um, Battlefield, came up here. We had a hell of a run with him, and um, he won a few in a row. Then won the Ramoni on the way home. We pulled it on the Ramoni on the way home. Then kept going home for a spell. Came back and he did an exhibition gallop at Scone, and unfortunately put his foot in a hole and fractured his shoulder. And that was probably one of the saddest days that uh, I've had a racetrack seeing him, um, unfortunately, what go down. What were you trying to win with him that prep? What were you looking at? Oh, it, it, it didn't matter. I mean, I just it, he was an absolute freak of a horse and uh, probably to this day one of the one of the best horses I've ever trained. I mean, uh, I don't, I'm not, not much of a punter and um, it was funny. We had, um, I was at Eagle Farm and it was, a, I think it was a class six or it was a three-year-old open race during the carnival. And he was seven to one, and I thought he was a dollar ten chance, and uh, this doesn't often happen. And uh, so anyway, we were there, and one of the owners, um, uh, Alan Jones, and he was there with a bunch of bunch of athletes and stuff. And we were in the mounting yard, and they said, uh, "What do you think? Do you think we should have a bet?" I said, "Whatever you got in your pocket, put a lot on. <laughs> Can't get beat." I like to hear that. And uh, anyway, it, it was it was who was riding? It was Kieran uh, Kieran McAvoy, and I was a pretty fledgling trainer then. I just started. And uh, I remember him, he looked at the form and we'd come from a class one at the Sunshine Coast and uh, and I can, I can just see him ticking over thinking, oh, this place got no idea. And I said, listen, it doesn't matter what happens, just point him in a clear space at the 300 and you'll win. Just All you have to do is just show him clear air at the 300. It doesn't matter where you sit, don't care what you do for the first half of the race, but at the 300, wherever you are, just give him clear air. Anyway, he did that and uh, I think at about the... 150. The horse was six lengths ahead, and uh, that was that. It was all all gone, but uh, all done. So that was a very easy watch and one of the the better days I've had on the race track. I've got the date here, Paul. It was the 20th of June, 09. There you go. Um, Back a while now. Beat Gundy's son, and then he won again. He won the Ascot Handicap at Eagle Farm, and then, as you said, you won the the Ramoni on the way home at 3:30 in July 2009. 
There you go. So, yeah. um, but by yeah. Choisir, but, but why were you so confident? Why? What was he doing? Extraordinary things on the track? He was doing great things on the track. Just all with it, well within himself. And actually, on the same day, I had a horse called Hustle Vista in the first race, and it was a much tougher race on paper than his race. And he had he had panels on her, you know, absolute panels. And she should have won the first race. And just off relative form, I knew coming into that race, which was a restricted three-year-old race. I said, he just has laps on them. You know, there's, I mean, he won a class one of the Sunshine Coast prior to that, which I used as a trial. And I had, I remember because Jeff Chapman said to me, I had Yana, was it? Yana Piper, who's Yana, now married to Denny Griffin. Okay, Yana Piper. Anyway, she was an apprentice at the time. So, and, and, and Dr. Jeff, who's a bit of a jockey basher, um, he, uh, he said to me, who the hell is Yana Piper? You know, where have you found Yana Piper to ride this horse? I said, well, statistically, she's a very good rider at the Sunshine Coast, and I just wanted someone that wasn't going to knock the horse around. And I still, in my instructions to her, I said, listen, you can make three mistakes and you'll still win, you know? I said, but if you make four, it's going to be close. So just play it simple, just jump, come to the outside, and uh, and then give him a bit of rain, it'll be over. And that day, it was another day for, for punters, there was a horse in the same race that was actually, I thought, once again, I thought we were a $1.50 chance. And we were, uh, there was a horse in the race that got back from nines into twos well, or something. The horse that ran second was Marg's Gold. Goldland was third. Any of those ring bells? Oh, I can't remember Your what it was. Your fluctuations were 270 from 225. Oh, there was, it blew out in the day. Well, I can't remember what it was. On the, I okay. got a better price than that at the time. Like it must have been on the on, at the, on course. But um, but uh, I remember there was one that was backed in heavily because I thought I was an absolute moral. And uh, and Yana, she um, she <laughs> I was watching the race and she's behind a wall of horses. And I was like, come on, come on. You know, you're always talking to the jockeys in your, in your, in your mind as you're watching the TV. And she stayed where she was. And I was like, oh, gosh, we, we're gone here. <laughs> and uh, there was a needle eye opening. She went for it, went straight through, and I think won, won pretty easily. But um, I still remember that. And then the owner of the horse, whichever horse was backed, he saw me at uh, the next start, the next start after that in town. And he said, oh, gosh, you're a good thing at, uh, at the Sunshine Coast in the class one, weren't you? I said, yeah, we were. Yeah, that's uh, that's Battlefield. Yeah, Yana Piper, of course, and Dan Griffin. Uh, sorry, uh, Yana Griffin and Dan, they're up in yeah. North Queensland now, uh, okay. living up there. Yeah, great stories. Now, you've got the catalogue there, the Magic Millions catalogue, Paul. There's a lot of uh, horses in there. What's your week in tail? How many have you looked at, and, and what's the plan? <laughs> yeah, well, I'm, I'm actually looking quite a few this year. Um, it's going to be interesting to see how the sales go. Obviously, economic conditions... Broader economic conditions are interesting at the moment with interest rates and things and how that's going to affect the market. We don't know. This sale generally sets the tone for the rest of the year. So mm. if the Magic Millions is good, it's normally a pretty solid year. If this is a poor sale, then it normally sets the tone for the rest of the year and it's a, it's a bit of a, a litmus test for us. So it will be interesting to see the way that it goes. Just in the top end of the sale will be fine. Um, it always is. Um, there's always money for those high-end horses. It's probably the bottom 50%, which might be a bit of a test, um, and there might be a bit more of a tail this year than there has been previously. Um, there's been amazing clearance rates up here the last three years, you know, around the yeah, 90%, 90% last mark. year. Yeah, and I think the year before, 90%, and the year before yeah. that might have been the same. Um, so, and the the average has been pretty steady. The median <coughs> can move around a little bit, um, but fundamentally, it's been a great sale the last couple of years, and it managed to dodge kind of COVID. As it turns out, COVID turned out to be a great thing for racing. Um, mm and I think racing generally, and uh, and for the sales and participation in, in ownership. So, um, you know, I, I'm tipping that the sale should be good again. There's lots of great incentives. 
Um, but obviously, the you know the interest rates and things like that, when people's home loans are doubling and tripling, it uh, you know there's not a lot of excess uh, money to to buy a share. Well, that's what Jason Scott was saying yesterday from Racing Queensland, the chief executive, just with turnover. What you just said there, you know, people are still betting, mm. um, having the same amount of bets, but less amounts. He mm. was saying. Paul, I, I guess you read every single page. Mm. You know a lot of it off by heart, but you go through every page. Do you then identify? what you want to go and have a look at, and, and that's your benchmark? Absolutely. So, I mean, fundamentally, we're looking for pedigrees, and in particular, you know, well-bred fillies for us with a, having a breeding operation. That's kind of generally our focus. Um, but um, there's other nice colts and stallion prospects in there, which we'll be, we'll be looking at as well. But um, it, it's, a, it's a good catalogue. Um, there's plenty of quality here, and good horses come out of, uh, of every sale, and, you know, it's important to have a pretty broad approach and there's a lot of new sires coming through so it's interesting to see their their progeny and what they look like and the ones you think are going to emerge and you get a bit of a feel for them uh, and then there's obviously the proven brigade the schnitzels the i'm invincibles you know those types of stallions dundeel's doing a good job dundeel's doing a great job uh, we've all got the autumn sun which i think is is really emerging now uh, particularly as the horses are, are three and getting to the mile um so um, it's you know, and, and this year might be a good opportunity for buyers. You know, it might be a, a year where there are lots of holes in the in the catalogue, and um, and with things the way they are, there could be some opportunities. Prices might be there, and there could be uh, some good buyers. I've never come across anybody who's got the background that you have in the breeding industry. And I asked somebody last week, and they couldn't answer me the question: Why isn't AI a thing yep. in regards to to thoroughbreds? It's moved onto standard breeds now, and I know being involved in greyhounds, it's massive there. Mm. Why isn't it a thing in, in thoroughbreds? Well, a couple of reasons. Um, fundamentally, I think generally it does narrow the breed. Um, For sure. Also, horse semen doesn't travel nearly as well as, as other species, so that's an issue um, okay. compared to... so. Um, a lot of the other, uh, the AI that they do, the, the straws here, they don't, they don't travel quite as well with, um, with horses and thoroughbreds, but um, we are part of an international community in, in horse racing in Australia and um, the rules of the stud book internationally and other, other jurisdictions are that there is no AI and so if we wanted to go out one off on our own and start doing it we'd be excluded from the international scene. Oh right. So um, that's one of the reasons why, mm -hmm. um, why obviously we haven't gone down that direction. Do you think direction. that'll change? I don't know uh, to be honest with you. I think it'd have to be a broad across international kind of movement mm. Uh, to change that, and uh, I'm not sure the Europeans would be um, necessarily for that. Um, you do, you know, with any widespread um, AI, as I said to you, you, you get the breed becomes uh, tighter because obviously your Schnitzels, your I'm Invincibles, we're going to have, you know, it would suit, it actually suits the bigger players. So, if, you know, if we have a stand like Schnitzel, we should be for AI uh, because, I mean, we could just. Yeah. Send out bucket loads of them, you know, and yeah. I, it, it doesn't, um, you know, it narrows the breed a bit. So you want that breed diversity. Uh, I think it's important for future breeding. I don't, I haven't had a proper look at it in, in you know, dogs or or in other standard breed, you know, other, 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 t I, know, I know they do it a lot in polo horses and bits yeah. and pieces, but. Um, in regards to the greyhounds, what, what it's done is if you've got a really good dog now, um, say you've got a good galloper. Mm and it retires to start, they're not getting the business because mm. we're seeing sires that race 
15, 20 years ago, their pups are still coming through, and I think they're starting to see that in the harness. So you're right, it definitely... Narrows the breed. Yeah, it does for sure. Yeah, I think in a rural, it definitely... If you look at it over a period of time, it has to... You know, it's just doing it the natural way limits to the amount that one stand can have, and uh, it's probably a, a better thing for the breed in the long term. Just having a look at Snitzel's, his service fee, 247000 around there at the moment. Uh, done deals, 82 and a half. It's interesting, done deal. He's amazing. Sometimes you forget how good horses are until right. you look at their form again. I had a look at it last night, and he had these wonderful battles with Prazia, and that's, that's interesting in itself because he's now the boom stand at Ritual, isn't he, right. in New Zealand. But what a remarkable horse, and he, he's not that big, but he, he's just had this amazing engine. Um, a lot of these breed love the blinkers too, Paul, don't they? Yeah, he's an amazing horse. And you, you're right, if you go back and watch his races, you think, how good was he? Like, he absolutely, you know, licked him in well, those Well, Prazi was odds on one of those. Yeah. He went straight by him, didn't he? Oh, he's, you know, when he won the, the, triple, the, the triple crown in Sydney, you know, he won the derby. I think the day that he won the derby in Sydney, he ran a faster last 400, uh, 400 than uh, Black Caviar did in the TJ on the same day. Um, he was a phenomenal racehorse, just an absolute freak. And, um, you know, he's putting that into a lot of his progeny. He's They're very outcross. adaptable. They're adaptable. Yeah. Uh, listen, most of them aren't So It's, it's interesting because he's actually had a lot of very good two-year-olds. So we never expected him to have the, the level. He's got, you know, he's got some great two-year-olds. And um, Castelvecchio is one that we stand at start at the moment. And um, he's... His record's exceptional as a stallion for Group 1 winning two-year-olds. So um, he's a horse that we kind of expected with his record and pedigree to be more three-year-olds, but he can throw a very sharp two-year-old horse. So um, he's really exciting. He's got some great books of, books of mares coming through. And, um, you know, I think he's, you know, I think the, the industry's really kind of found him and... Um, He's a horse that you can buy that can get get you a good two-year-old, but also trains on. They can run derbies and um, and guineas and all those types of races as well. So pretty set super Seth, one of the core for guineas. Yeah, he's had some yeah. really top top horses. So you've obviously got a pick there amongst your draft going through across the road. Yeah, which is the one or the couple there? Okay. What's your prediction? Well, I I've kind of as I said I tend to fall in love with one, and the one in our draft that I'm in love with at the moment is uh, the Autumn Sun out of Time Check, which is a cult. It's a, uh, a three-quarter relation to Willinga Beast, who actually was, I thought should have won the other day up here at uh, in Brisbane. Uh, the Chris Lee's trains, and uh, he's an outstanding what cult. What part of the catalogue? I've got it in front uh, of me. Willing, he is lot. Let's have a look here. Uh, time Check is lot 305. So what day will that be? That will be on the Wednesday. Okay. Wednesday How many in the draft week? for Arrowfield? We've got 54 in the okay. draft. How so many schnitzels there? Schnitzels we have, uh, off the top of my head, I think we must have close to a dozen. I okay. Think, I think. And done deals? And done deals, uh, probably uh, fractionally. There's about 10 of each, I think, okay. overall. Yeah, just at a quick glance. But um, uh, So there's a good bunch, and uh, we've got a new Japanese sire this year. Um, in Admire Mars, who's a, a champion Japanese uh, two-year-old and obviously went to Hong Kong and won away for ages as a three-year-old in Hong Kong. Uh, so he's really exciting. Of course, you've got Morris, have you? We've got Morris as well, who's obviously got Mazu and some, you know, Hitotsu and it's, it's some great horses here as well. And they're all fabulous outcrosses for, you know, they're, they're breeds that are coming from a different part of the world um, that uh, are kind of left of centre for us and uh, we can, you know, they're easy to breed to our mares because, you know, we're very Dane Hill dominated, Danzig, Northern Dancer Line dominated in this country and his project has been great, but uh, we need outcrosses and uh, these horses are the outcrosses. Do many for. potential buyers seek you out before um, before they get paraded around the ring and they start bidding? Is that a, is that a done thing in relation to what what to, to buying? 
in asking what yeah, I, what do you think? Oh, absolutely. So over the just to give your listeners a, a rundown from basically uh, yesterday, the day before the inspections are on. So mm-hmm. leading up to the sale, you've got about a week of inspections. Um, and so we'll have all of our clients and customers come and inspect the horses and they'll ask lots of questions and we'll answer as much as we can. Obviously, it's a very transparent process. We've got the x-rays are there for them to look at, scopes of the horses and whatever else we can give them to try and uh, give them the best, uh, most most amount of confidence in in, in making that purchase. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, they ask us questions about the progeny, what the mare's uh, got on the ground, what she's been, you know, what she's been bred to this year, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And all that information is available to buyers. And yeah, they'll say, Paul, what do you think? You know, someone I always they always say, what's your favourite horse? It's time check, you know. So I, that's just you know mm. that's that's in the draft this year for whatever reason. That's the horse that's really kind of caught my eye, and they do change a lot even during the, the preparation. And um, it's amazing the development these horses make over that three month period in prep, and then when they get to the sales, and you see some of them just really explode physically on the sales grounds. And uh, we've got some. Oh, listen, this we've got the lovely cult out of Arcadia Queen, a first foal, oh, wow. Invincible. So he's, uh, you know... He'll go for some money. He's bred in the purple. and yeah, he, He'll he be should, up there in the cup. Will he be, you know, million, two million? He should be up up above the... Up Last year there were four $2 million plus lots, wasn't it? Weren't there? Yeah, he'll, he'll be... Listen, he'll be up there in that uh, that kind of rear air. But, um, you know, he's a, a prized possession and, and a potential stallion prospect. What day do you someone. think that's going under the pool? Uh, he goes through, OK, he is on Arcadia Queen. Let me just have a quick run through. He, he's on the same... Wednesday. Wednesday. Lot 442. Okay. So, um, yeah, he'll be exciting. Uh, he's going to be exciting. Prospect. Just for 21 now? Yeah. Yeah, of course, on the track, um, you know, he didn't have that many starts. 15 for seven wins, of course, outstanding. Just with him, so... Who does so? Say I want to book a mare into Snitzel. What's the process? Obviously, you've got to turn a lot. Of, you've got to be very selective. So, whose job is that at Arrowfield to say, okay, we'll accept that mare for this particular boom stallion? As we mentioned, he's or around the quarter of a million dollar mark his fee. So, how does that all work? Well, it, it's uh, well, we've got a team obviously at the farmer sales team, and uh, if you were to have a mare, and uh, firstly, we we kind of take. Um, uh, I, I guess offers to a degree of uh, offers of interest, and uh, and then if there is a, a surplus amount, let's say there's there's 150 spots and we've got 300 mares, then we have to go through and decide which mares of those 300 are going to fill the 150 spots. Um, that's done on a, a variety of. Um, uh, there's a variety it's not of just on form. No, it's not pedigree. A, no, pedigree. It's what the mares had before, what she's produced. Uh, if we think uh, the fertility of the mares and other issues, uh, we don't want to be filling up um, filling up uh, spots with mares that are unlikely to This would be to a timely file. process. It's a timely process. It's a long process. There's a lot of thought given to it. And also clients, long-term clients, um, you know, so there's some loyalty around people who have used the stallion before. We try and look after them as much as we can. Um, and also then giving the stallion the best opportunity to hopefully produce uh, the best outcome, which will then, you know, um, obviously improve his um, his stallion fee down the track. And we operate uh, these horses, a lot of the stallions that we have anyway, are owned by syndicates. So we have to do what's in the best interest always of the syndicate, you know, and making sure that uh, the, the name of the game is getting mares in foal. If they don't foal, we don't get paid. And so uh, at the end of the day, they're the the kind of the the decisions that we make uh, around who gets in and who doesn't. But it's multifactorial. It's not okay. a it's not a straightforward thing. Paul, it's been fascinating having you as a, as a guest here. Good luck over the, across the road. It's going to be a massive week, of course. Uh, uh, what about the race day itself? Is, is that, are you going to have representation, a runner there somewhere? We've got a filly, don't, uh, we've got a filly in the... 
debutante race. Yeah. Dominata, Dominata, I think they call her. She is uh, with uh, Gay and Adrian. Yep. And um, so we're, uh, we're, I think, I don't know what price we are at the moment, but we're in the debutante race for the Phillies, the two-year-old unraced. Yeah, those fields are out nice and early. And Jen yeah. Zano was the one you were talking about with that Altensia bloodline. That one at Newcastle, was it? One at Newcastle, Spring Stakes, yeah. Uh, yeah, kind of a month or so ago. So she's been out for a break and uh, she'll come back for some better, she's back in at the moment for some yeah. better races in the autumn. Doc Chapman might want a coffee with you at some stage in the next couple of days. Guaranteed to catch up with the doc. I've caught up with him already. He was yep. my first stop when I got up here. So, no, yeah. I can't thank the doc enough yeah. for uh, all the help that he's given me. And he mentioned Percy. Percy's unfortunately no longer with us, but uh, Percy was a huge help to me as well. But, um, no, I love the doc and, uh, and and Kate, his partner. They've been a huge help to me. And uh, particularly when you're starting off training, it's, it is a really challenging thing, training horses, and one of the harder occupations, I think. And uh, it takes a lot, and you've got to have, a, you know, it's persistence and a lot of drive to keep going because getting up in the morning and uh, staring at slow ones, I can tell you, it's not easy. Every day. Every day. There weren't too many slow ones giving you a strike rate. Oh, well, I, I, yeah. I try my best to place them where they can win. That's yeah. all we can do. Thanks, Paul. Pleasure. Paul Massara and Jared, thank you. You're thank on you, your Steve. I'll tell you what, that's been, that, that last half hour is one of the most interesting interviews that I've ever been involved in. Well, I so agree. Much. There's a lot of questions that were answered there that we didn't know about Jared before. Yeah, that's for sure. Yeah, and I made a major blunder earlier. I was about Dan Griffin. I mentioned Yana. Of course, they they did date for a while, but of course, Dan ended up marrying, of course, Tay Williams, uh, now Tay Griffin. So my apologies. A big slip up from me there. But uh, yeah, they did date for a period of time anyway. But uh, thanks for that, Paul. Pleasure. Paul Massara, Jared Daffy. We'll take a break. Broadcasting here for the Gold Coast Turf Club.